Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. I am excited to introduce a new podcast series in partnership with UBS Asset Management titled House Call, a monthly update on the House View equity portfolios, including Dividend Ruler, QGARP, Opportunistic Equity Income, Mid-Cap, and Large-Cap Poor, all very popular offerings with our UBS client base. So on a going forward basis each month, we will provide equity market insights and portfolio updates from the U.S. private client equity team headed by Jeremy Zirin. So on today's launch podcast, I am pleased to welcome Jeremy himself, as well as Tom Dignan, a lead equity investment specialist with UBS Asset Management. Tom is going to be our moderator. So, Tom, welcome. Let me pass it over to you. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you for having us on the show today. The House View Equity portfolios are very well known and loved by many of our clients and financial advisors. Jeremy and his team have been building the empire for over 10 years, and it's really amazing to see the following they've amassed. So we're really excited to launch this podcast series so that on a monthly basis, we'll be able to deliver real-time updates to our listeners on equity markets and some portfolio highlights as well. So with that, I'm going to jump right into the questions and talk a little bit about the market. So, Jeremy, with the S&P 500 near all-time highs, despite some recent ups and downs, can you just take a moment to discuss what have been the main drivers of the market's strong starts of the year? Sure, Tom. Uh, It's clearly been uh, a strong start, right? The markets are up you know, roughly 9% year-to-date as of today, and that's on top of the 18% gains that we saw uh, during the pandemic year of 2020. And so markets are close to all-time highs, and many investors still ask, you know, so how do you explain the strength in markets, just given the fact that we haven't gotten uh, back to what would be a, a more normally functioning or fully functioning economy? And, and I think the biggest focal point for investors uh, really dating back to the second half of last year, has just been progress made on the COVID front, right? Progress towards economic normalization. And so this year, we've seen just a continuation and, if anything, an acceleration of the timeline of when we can get back to a more normally fully functioning economy. And so whether you're looking at the accelerated pace of the vaccine rollout, the data on just the falling number of new COVID cases and hospitalizations, and the expectation for mobility restrictions, which are already starting to ease, to continue to ease over the course of the next several weeks and months, has been the biggest driver of just the improved sentiment, as well as just expectations for the economy to to return to a, a full recovery mode. I would say the second positive development that's more specific to the equity market rally has been just the the strength and resilience of the profit cycle. And so S&P 500 earnings have to be characterized here as just incredibly resilient um, given the economic shocks and dislocations that we've seen. Right, last year, earnings only fell 15% year on year. And in a normal recession, on average, profits usually fall 20 to 25%. So the fact that earnings only fell 15% in a year where we had amongst the biggest economic dislocation since the Great Depression uh, is pretty remarkable. And what's even more constructive on a forward-looking basis, Tom, is the fact that the current run rate of earnings as we're emerging from the pandemic is already above pre-pandemic levels. We're we're most of the way through first quarter earnings season, 
S&P earnings are on track to have quarterly earnings of close to $49 or $50 per share. That's a $200 per share run rate. And considering that S&P earnings peaked at about $165 a share in 2019, it just speaks to the the strength and the resiliency uh, of corporate America and, and the strength of the profit cycle. Well, resiliency has obviously been a key, but I heard you use another word in there as well, and that was expectations. So when I look at expectations, what's what's your base case on how the rest of the year plays out? Look, I think that from an economic point of view, we're going to see what can only be categorized as explosive growth. Right? I think the GDP growth, as we have the economic reopening and mobility restrictions lifted, uh, will be tremendous. And so this quarter, the second quarter of 2021, our economists are expecting GDP growth north of 10%. And we're likely to see 5 to 7% GDP growth for the next four quarters after that, as we have a reopening of normal economic activity. And, and that's largely driven by, you know, yes, the restrictions are being lifted. So there's lots of pent-up demand for all kinds of economic activity, mostly in the services and hospitality sectors. And so we're clearly going to see a pickup in with travel and restaurants and other entertainment that were restricted over the past year. Um, but also, as more and more people return to their offices and more companies have returned to work policies set in place for the second half of this year, first half of next year, you're likely to see a revival of some of those urban centers that have really been depressed over the last 12 months as well. And, and just as importantly, you know, because of the huge amount of pandemic relief packages delivered by the government, you know, consumer incomes are high and balance sheets are strong. So not only do we have the, you know, demand and pent up demand for lots of, of, of services and, and some goods as well, uh, consumers also have the ability to unleash that pent up demand with, you know, with high levels of, of current cash balances. And so from a market's perspective, I think this translates into, you know, the profit cycle being, you know, continuing to be strong and resilient like we've seen over the last couple of quarters and that being the the primary driver of a constructive market view. And so while, you know, the the sort of the composition of market gains likely is going to shift from improving sentiment and rising valuations to one where earnings will be the primary driver of returns going forward, I still see the markets trending higher as we emerge from the pandemic. Well, there there are an incredible amount of positive developments, but you know they say the market is continually climbing a wall of worry. It, it looks like we still have some plenty of worries or risks to climb. You know, we're looking at rising inflation, potentially higher taxes, and and there are still pockets of COVID hotspots globally. So, how do you get comfortable with those risks or worries in, in formulating your market views? It, um, it's a great question, and 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 typically ones that I find that you know clients are focused on and. Frankly, I think often investors focus a little bit too much on, on downside risks and not enough about upside opportunities. But look, Claire, there are no shortage of risks that you just outlined, among others. I think the most important thing to consider when thinking about each of those and other market risks are both their probability of occurring and their potential impact to what matters, the economy and to corporate profits, if they do come to fruition. And so admittedly, you know, most of us, uh, whether we're strategists or portfolio managers, we're better at calculating the impact than the probability, but we, we certainly do, do our best to try to, to marry those two. 
And so just like tackling each of the issues that you just talked about, you know, inflation is not necessarily a bad thing for markets. You know, companies, you know, companies will have you know, some increased pricing power, will be able to take advantage of a little bit of an inflationary tailwind. And that the real inflation risk to investors is that if it becomes so elevated that it forces the Federal Reserve to start to raise interest rates to cool off the economy and to prevent uh, runaway inflation. And so I, I believe that we're a long ways away from that potentially more dire outcome. You know, the Federal Reserve has been undershooting its 2% inflation target for much of the last decade, and it recently changed their methodology and their, uh, their likely to leave int- uh, or allow for inflation to run a bit above its 2% target before they start to change interest rates, which translates to me into, you know, a Fed that's likely to be supportive for the overall economy. And I don't think that we're likely to see, you know, runaway inflation. Yes, inflation is going to be a buzzword and a concern for the next, you know, three, six, nine months. We still have, you know, inflationary pressures as demand is outstripping supply right now, whether that's in the labor market or whether that's in many specific industries because of, you know, supply chain bottlenecks that were caused by the pandemic. Um, but, over time, I think that you're going to see a lot of those inflationary pressures eased, uh, especially in the labor market, where a lot of labor is right now sitting on the sidelines because of either the pandemic, uh, they haven't been vaccinated and they can't get back into the workforce, or because of the fact that you know the kids are still at home um, and, and there's still restrictions for full uh, return to school plans. And so I think once we get to the fall and you know, schools are going to be full again. Uh, unemployment in, in, uh, benefits start to roll off. You're going to see a return of many laborers back to the labor market having a more dampening effect on inflation. All right. Well, we, we spoke a little bit about the opportunities and risks. Now I kind of want to move towards market positioning. You know, within the U.S. market, value stocks have led the market higher so far this year. But do you, do you think this can continue or will investors rotate back into the secular growth names that really drove the market gains for much of the past several years? Look, in the early stages of a business cycle where we are, you typically do see the value outperforms growth. You typically see small and mid-caps outperform large caps, and you see cyclical sectors outperform defensive sectors. And the common trait amongst those outperforming market segments is that they have more sensitivity to economic growth. And so they're likely to deliver faster earnings growth over the next year or two as the economy recovers and economic growth gains momentum. In the current cycle, perhaps it's a bit more nuanced with reopening plays likely to outperform, say, you know, the so-called stay-at-home stocks from, from 2020, which did so well. Uh, but that broader market playbook that I just discussed, I think, is likely to hold true. And particularly, I think value stocks are pretty interesting here as, over as, as, a, as a likely outperformer over you know, large cap growth or secular growth um, platform types of companies. You know, why do I say that? Well, in, 20, in 2020 last year, you mentioned growth just trounced value, right? And, and growth stocks outperformed value by 35 percentage points, the most they've ever outperformed 
value in any single year in the history of the level indices. And it was somewhat warranted because these company, growth companies had faster earnings growth because their earnings growth for value companies collapsed because many of them uh, had pretty severe impact from the pandemic or facing pretty severe impact from the pandemic. And then you, and the, you also had falling interest rates last year, which supported the valuations for growth stocks. And if you fast forward to this year, we're now seeing a reversal of both of those factors, right? You're likely to see faster earnings growth from the value-oriented recovery plays in the market. And then you're also seeing that interest rates have risen pretty dramatically from a low of last year of about 50 basis points all the way to about 1.6%. My view is that there's likely more room for interest rates to rise, more room for economic activity to continue to, 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 to advance, and that should continue to be a tailwind for value over growth. And yes, value is outperformed by about 13 percentage points this year. But if you look at the, the relative valuations between value and growth, we're still clearly favoring value. We're still about one to one and a half standard deviations cheap relative to history uh, that value stocks are, are more attractive than growth stocks. Well, and then even within value, and I think you alluded to this, you talked about cyclicals, you talked about the interest rate environment. Um, what sectors within the value space look really interesting to you right now? Yeah, two that we're focused on and been adding exposure to in our portfolios would be financials and industrials. Uh, I would say, that, look, financials uh, have cheap valuations relative to the market, and that's despite the fact that their balance sheets just came through the pandemic with flying colors and lots of excess capital. And so when I look forward to, you know, the outlook for financials, I think you're going to see healthy markets supporting their earnings growth. I think you're going to see rising interest rates supporting their net interest margins. And I think you're going to see generally an accelerating economy, which would limit credit losses. So I think that there's still further upside for the financial sector, particularly relative to the broader market. And then when I think about the industrials, you know, they're typically an early cycle winner and an economic recovery play as you go from more depressed levels of, you know, manufacturing to uh, more normal levels of manufacturing to produce all of those goods that uh, the consumers have pent up demand for. I would say in this cycle, they may get an added kicker from a potential infrastructure spending package from Washington. And while that's certainly... Um, has some risk to it. It, it seems to me that we're uh, likely to see some form of infrastructure package, even if it's not quite as large as the current proposals coming from the Biden administration. It should still support, you know, even faster earnings growth uh, for industrials and material companies, perhaps even energy companies, than they normally would see at this stage of the cycle coming out of a recession. Well, that's really good. So we know what your views are. Let's talk a little bit about how, how you deliver that. Um, your team manages five portfolios, all of which are exclusive for UBS Wealth Management clients. Can you give our listeners a quick overview of the portfolios that you and the team manage? Sure. So, you know, I would say before I get into each of the portfolios, th there is a common thread uh, across our portfolios um, in how we manage and how we come to our conclusions on both stock selection and portfolio construction. And what that combines is different disciplines in, in the investment landscape. And so one of them is quantitative. Uh, we're not a quant shop per se, but we use quantitative models that help us identify the specific characteristics that are relevant 
for the portfolio's purpose. And then we also leverage the outstanding work done by our chief investment office to incorporate both our top-down views on markets, meaning how do you know the direction of markets, what areas of the markets we uh, should focus on, as well as the, the bottom-up views uh, on individual securities. And so when you talk to many portfolio managers, they say, well, we're quantitative in nature or we're macro in nature or we're just pure stock pickers and everything is from a bottom-up perspective. Now, I believe there's value in all three of those. And so we try to extract that value from those disciplines and incorporate all of those into our portfolios. And so what are our portfolios? Uh, well, we have uh, one portfolio called the Dividend Ruler Portfolio, which is our longest-standing portfolio, which I created when I was the chief equity strategist in wealth management uh, back in 2003. And it focuses on companies that we have high conviction will deliver strong and consistent dividend growth uh, through the business cycle. Uh, our largest portfolio to, right now is called QGARP. It's, that acronym stands for Quality Growth at a Reasonable Price. And so it is focused on large cap growth companies. But the primary focus really is to mitigate the risk that is inherent in investing in growth companies by having an overlay of quality as well as valuations. And I would say that that's certainly even more pertinent in today's environment where growth stocks have had such a dramatic run-up in performance and valuation over the past few years to have a keen focus on not overpaying for companies that are likely to deliver above average uh, earnings growth. Uh, a third portfolio is our large cap value portfolio called the Opportunistic Equity Income Portfolio. It looks for companies that have an attractive current dividend yield that appear intrinsically undervalued. And so where we can identify companies that look cheap, have uh, throw off a nice dividend for an investors, and the opportunistic component of it comes from our ability to identify some catalyst that will unlock the stock's undervaluation uh, over time. And then finally, we have two other strategies, our mid-cap strategy and our large-cap core portfolio. And, and I would say, you know, in a nutshell, both focus on companies with quality, durable business models with moats, where we have conviction that these companies will deliver healthy earnings growth over the course of the entire business cycle. Well, I think that was a great overview of, I think, a, a great set of portfolios. Thank you, Jeremy. And you didn't even mention the performance of the New York Mets or the Chicago White Sox. Both teams are in first place, so it puts us in a good mood. So I want to thank you, Jeremy, for joining us. And Dan, thanks again for having us on the show today. We look forward to delivering these updates to investors and financial advisors each month. Until next time, good luck. Great. Well, Tom, Jeremy, thank you for joining our listeners, our clients, and for sharing the insights that you did with us today. Again, we've been joined by Tom. Tom Dignan, a lead equity investment specialist, as well as Jeremy Zirin, head of the U.S. private client equity team, both with UBS Asset Management. Again, today has been the first installment of our new podcast series with UBS Asset Management, House Call, a monthly update on the House View equity portfolios. On a going forward basis, we do look forward to providing you equity insights from UBS Asset Management's U.S. private client equity team on a monthly basis. If you have any questions or are looking for more information on the House View equity portfolios, please be sure to contact your UBS financial advisor. The UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available
available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.